Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today, it looks like coronavirus is on the march again. All over the world, we're hearing about second waves, third waves, fourth waves. Victoria's gone from stage three to stage four. New South Wales is concerned. Queensland's closed its borders. So it is time to once again go over some of the big, big arguments which go to not just what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks, but the next couple of years as this scourge works its way through the world populations and governments all over the world destroy the economy in an attempt to eradicate it. We'll be talking about that. And then for a bit of light relief, we'll be talking about what we're going to do about China's latest scourge, which is, of course, TikTok, as uh, it works to undermine democracy in the West. Is Microsoft the appropriate saviour for our children's uh, 15-second uh, video entertainment? We'll be talking about that and other big issues during the course of the Looking Forward podcast. Uh, we'll also have our usual books and culture segment where Berg will, of course, be talking about something blockchain which is a, a book on cryptocurrency called The Infinite Machine, uh, but that does actually sound quite interesting. Um, and uh, we'll be talking about Yuval Levin's A Time to Build, which is about how the institutions of the West have been failing us, including during the coronavirus epidemic. Uh, and I'll be talking about a 2018 movie about none other than Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the, uh, the Democrats' last hope on the Supreme Court, while they're hoping that she'll survive until the election at least. Um, so all that and more. Don't forget this is a podcast of the IPA. You can go to ipa.org.au to see how you can join or donate or just get around this and our other podcasts. First, I'd like to welcome uh, my co-host from RMIT University, Dr. Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Chris, it should be another great show, and I know you've been thinking deeply about coronavirus. <laughs> All the time. Uh, it's also my pleasure to mention one of the, one of the young, uh, to introduce one of the younger members of the IPA team, uh, research fellow, Kean Hussey. Welcome, Kean. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Scott. Uh, great to have you. And uh, Kean, of course, you're on the other side of the continent in the great state of Western Australia. It's great to have that that different perspective of. A little, a little taste of freedom over there, mate. Yeah, <clears throat> good freedom, but um, the Wi-Fi isn't great, so hopefully the, this goes okay. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. You can't have everything, my friend. You can, yes. you can go out for beers, uh, for beers with at least five friends, uh, which you can't do here, but the Wi-Fi might suffer. But, um, yes, Chris, this week in Victoria, the debate was framed by a series of announcements on Sunday in response to... Uh, a week or, or more of uh, coronavirus cases in the 500, 600, 700s, and then we've uh, we've finally got that stage four, which so many people seem to want in in March and April, and now they've got it. What's going yes, on? Yes, the famous this? the famous stage four. So, as you say, um, for the last week or two, we've had numbers in the multiple hundreds, so 400s all the way up to 700s. We're recording this on Wednesday, and I think it's. 700 again today the government has announced or decided obviously that um uh these numbers are too high in fact the chief medical officer said that while the numbers were steady they could not accept the idea that those numbers would remain steady for a period i think he mentioned six months so uh we can't accept having 400 new coronavirus cases a day 
for six months or so. What we have to do, according to the chief medical officer, is drive that number down. How are we going to drive it down? Well, there's a huge range of policy initiatives in Victoria. Um, one of them, uh, which I was... <laughs> So much has happened, Scott, over the last couple of days mm. that I have forgotten some of the core policies. And as I was quickly looking just to remind myself, we have a curfew. Do you remember we have a curfew yes. in Victoria? Which, eight, which, which came uh, into uh, effect like four hours after the press conference on Sunday, for God's sake. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, get the hell home, basically. Uh, we have a curfew at 8 p.m. Um, we uh, significantly enhanced fines. Obviously, we weren't allowed to visit family or friends um, uh, but police may now visit anybody's home or enter anybody's home without a warrant. The big, big changes, though, was the economic policies, the workplace policies. And in this range of measures, which I, I will say we're still trying to figure out, we as, as workers and employees and employers and consumers, um, they are basically shutting down or forcing to work from home um, almost every company in Melbourne, um, with some specific exceptions around things like abattoirs or construction, which will have a regulated and controlled reduction in output. Uh, one of them, for instance, abattoirs, only two thirds of people will be allowed to work in the abattoir, as did previously construction, no more than five people per site, all this sort of stuff. So it's an extraordinary, um, policy range. Yes, yeah, so they haven't quite uh, specified how many nails you're allowed to carry in your no, the, uh, in, in your belt onto a building site, but that's, yeah, it, it's nearly to that level. The, it, it is really to that level, um, or at least it's promised to be really to that level because so much of the documentation isn't out there. Um, I'm going to throw it to Kian in a moment, but I do want to say that regardless of what you think of the intent of the policy, regardless of you think what you think of the demand for the policy, this is an unprecedented, deliberate crash halting the economy. We are no longer talking about freezing or putting an economy into hibernation. We are slamming the brakes on the um, on, on Victoria's economy just completely. It is an extraordinary moment. Kian, in this extraordinary moment, looking at it from Perth, what is your first take? Um well, I'm pretty glad I got out, really. Um, <laughs> so I think it was in May that I um, came back over to Western Australia where I had only just moved to Melbourne from um, in, in March, right before this all happened. So, yeah, glad that I got over here to get a bit of freedom. Um, so it, it feels a little bit disconnected over here because things are so different and, and we've, you know, have moved beyond all of this. Um, but the first thing that comes to mind is that it, it seems bizarre that stage four came into effect when stage three or whatever stage we were in, or well, Victoria was in, wasn't really being um, enforced properly. So, for example, with the, um, the 800 out of 3,000 people who were supposed to be at home that were missing um, when, when uh, the, I think it was the ADF went knocking, um, so, and, and then it turns out that you're allowed to leave um, your house to do exercise if you're under home quarantine. Victoria, Even when you've actually been confirmed to have the disease, have positive. Because, yeah. of, because of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, they yeah. decided, well, yeah, but you can, you can still go out for an hour a day and yeah. exercise. So it seems bizarre. Like, I, I don't know why you wouldn't 
fix things like that before you um, put the whole state into stage back into stage three and then metropolitan Melbourne into stage four. Um, the, the other thing is this is just, it, it goes to show that um, locking down was, it's just the harm that's caused by locking down and then opening up and then locking down again. Um, it, was, it was an absurd idea to begin with. It was never going to happen. Um, and it's pretty depressing as well for, the, for all the people who are going to lose their jobs um, because of this and the um, impact on people's livelihoods. So one of the things that, um, that we did over the weekend was had a quick look at the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. Their estimate uh, for stage four in New Zealand was a 37% hit to GDP. So when you apply that to Victoria, that's about $3.2 billion per week of economic activity gone. Um, and um, by Dan Andrews' own admission, he expected around 250,000 people to um, be stood down. Um, we think it'll be a bit higher than that, the Institute of Public Affairs. We, based on, so going from no lockdown to stage three, there was about a 9% drop in, um, in payroll employment, according to the ABS. Um, so if we saw a similar effect this time, there'll be around 300,000 um, jobs lost. I should add, before um, even going to stage four, um, 100, 170,000 Victorians had already lost their job um, and another 80,000 were, were working zero hours. So they were technically still employed, but not working. So it, it's just a terrible, um, terrible impact on people's lives. You've touched on a few things there, Kian, which I think are worth um, uh, discussing. One of the things that I think has happened here, and trying to assess the government's policies dispassionately, is that um, we have ramped up the restrictions in order to deal with a compliance problem from previous restrictions. So a lot of these policies seem to me to be a, uh, to be designed not because the virus is transmitted worse at night, which is what a curfew might on the face of it imply. Like, why would they prevent us from going out at night? There's no reason to believe that it's more dangerous at night. It's to make it easier for the police to identify people who are driving at night and start assuming that they are out for a, um, a, a wrong reason. I think a lot of this, we, we've, we've had an obvious compliance problem and you've explained one of those um, examples there, the people who were found outside their home when they had already been diagnosed with COVID. Um, uh, but we've got compliance problems across the board, but instead of tackling that as a compliance problem, we've just made more rules. Mm. Yeah, well, that's all right. And, and it, that's what seems to have been the case the whole way along is that, um, you know, 90, 90, they always say the 99% of people who are doing the right thing um, and, and they continue to, but yeah, it, it makes more sense. I would have thought to try and address those compliance problems. Um, yeah, and it, that would be something basic. I thought to go and check in on people, make sure that once they tested positive, that they're actually in their um, house. And then once they realise there's a loophole, maybe close the loophole before you know you put um, the whole of Melbourne on stage. Well, that's right. And this is before we even get to the uh, universally known hotel quarantine uh, fiasco the only the only state which did not involve uh, uh, allow police to uh, provide the oversight of the hotel quarantine operations um, but I don't want to spend much time on that uh, Chris because I, I think 
it's been a bit of a unity ticket in Victoria to talk about the uh, the rank incompetence of the Andrews government in this fiasco and the shocking way they've uh, deflected uh, blame from it and refused to answer questions about it. Um, but it's been a bit of a unity ticket and it sort of annoys me a little bit because uh, it's been a unity ticket of people saying, look at that Andrews government, how badly did they stuff this up? But that's from people who both believed in their strategy and those that expressed reservations. And so I don't want to spend too much time on it because we still have to get to the whole thing about the strategy because, um, and also the ham-fistedness of what they're doing now. Um, the fact that, as you say, it's still very hard to figure out what's going on. Um, we discovered only this morning, and remember these, uh, this workforce restriction come into effect tonight, that for those employees who actually do have the right to be in an office, uh, you must provide them with a form, uh, a signed form by a representative of the organisation, the company. And how do you find this form? Well, you could find it on the, on the Department of Health website if it hadn't crashed from people trying to download it. The fact that you somehow have to download it, print it, sign it, scan it, send it to your boss who's obviously in another location so that they can sign it, scan it, and then it can be lodged with the government. Um, so we've only been at this for about six months and we're still in a situation where they can't even organise a system to actually um, have a register of those employees who actually are exempt and are allowed to be in the workplace. I mean, in New South Wales, when they had permit systems for crossing the border, you can apparently go into the New South Wales Government Service app um, and do it all online. But here we are still downloading forms. I mean, this just one it's one damn thing after another. But... Um, but as I say, that's at the tactical and operational level. Forgive me another complaint just on that. Let's well. uh, the pile <laughs> on because people need to, you know, listeners of Looking Forward will be shocked to discover that governments seem to be incompetent at such a vast range of things. But well, this, is, uh, this is important and this is maybe Kian doesn't fully understand this and listeners who are not in other, not in Victoria, would not fully understand this. So there's the published health orders which is the chief medical officer's orders lawful under the um, public health acts. So uh, that, that is basically the functional legislation completely contradicts what was announced on Monday. The most recent public health orders, I should clarify, were published on Sunday. There was an announcement then on Monday that completely says the opposite of that. And to understand who's allowed to go to work, you have to hop on the departmental website, hunt for a list that is very, very hard to find of permitted workers um, and try to sort of match that document to that document to that document. Now, for, for me, of course, you know, RMIT, RMIT's gone, gone home, of course. But I mean, from, from a small business perspective, from a business that relies on people being in an office, being in a factory, in a workplace, where physical labor has to be done. I, I can't imagine how hard it must be right now. Scott, and I know that you must be just working through this yourself and trying to figure out what can and can't be done for an organization like the IPA. Can you imagine a, 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 what a small business would do in that context? Yeah, quite, quite apart from the seeming cavalier manner uh, in which they're just being told to close regardless of whether they they've had any issues or whether they've followed any plans. Oh, by the way, I should I should mention that uh, one of the requirements to be allowed to do anything at all is to have in place a COVID safe plan. You think after six months, 
you might be able to find on a Victorian government website what a COVID safe uh, plan is meant to look like and what it might contain. Uh, uh, we, <laughs> we've used a template from New South Wales <laughs> because there aren't any in Victoria, even though we're meant to help, have one. I mean, this, but, um, but at least, speaking of New South Wales, and, and we could stay on the incompetence for us. We can, we can just bitch and moan about, basically, this is bureaucracy writ large. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and and I, I, have, I have some sympathy, right, that this has had to be done incredibly fast. That's obviously the case, and it's incredibly hard. And I, I do understand that Dan Andrews, when the government decided that they were going to micromanage which businesses were allowed to be open and shut, then, well, turns out that's a really hard thing to do. But still, um, given the scale of what they're asking us to do, given the consequences of that ask, um, uh, it, it's hard to be too forgiving. So the, the, to talk about New South Wales and the strategic point, I'm looking at a piece that appeared, I think this was in the um, uh, Daily Telegraph with um, uh, Dominic uh, Perrottet, um, uh, where he's talking about, you know, God forbid, the trade-off or the issues involved in, in lockdowns and why he's determined not to see a lockdown like Victoria in New South Wales. You know, he, he, he uses the sort of numbers that Kim was quoting, you know, you know, $1.4 billion weekly is what it would mean in, in New South Wales. But then he goes on to say, in human terms, that's $1.4 billion in wages not being earned, bills not being paid, sales not being made, goods and services not being produced all affecting the welfare of millions of people. That's why I have said, this is Perite, uh, that in New South Wales we must do everything we can to avoid another lockdown. What I want listeners to know is that is a language that we do not hear in Victoria. What we hear is uh, repeated press conferences with uh, here are some new liberties that are being taken away, here are the, here's how we're going to close businesses, here's how we're going to close schools. Oh, and look, there'll be an economic impact and that's a shame. Um, and, uh, yeah, sure, we'll, there'll be some grants available, and that's a shame, uh, but we've got no choice. Um, there's just no strategic discussion, and then, and then this cheer squad um, uh, of Victorians, you know, the, the Dan Andrews army almost uh, that stands behind him to, on social media um, to say, we have no choice, you know, it's time to start just locking people up um, for even criticising these measures. That's, that's the sort of um, temper of the argument in Victoria. It's, it's really quite uh, disturbing. That is, a, that is a weird thing that I've really found strange during, um, during COVID, is the idea that there is absolutely a one true answer in, from a policy perspective. And I'm not suggesting that you have to... Um, it, 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 it's as if there's only two people in the world with... With, with with divergent opinions. On the one hand, there's the shut it all down completely crowd um, and the economy doesn't matter and health is the only thing that matters. Or, or there's the let it rip, nothing matters, um, uh, got a maximum herd immunity model. The idea that there might be debate within those two across the spectrum, um, that there might be arguments about the marginal benefit of policy choices, is apparently just completely alien to our political debate right now. It, to be critical of policies done by the Andrews government is apparently to call for um, hundreds and thousands of elderly deaths. Yep. Um, and, and that is obscene, it's but that appears to be the 
the the evolved yeah. marketing strategy for so much of, of it, what we're yeah I've um, I've, I've seen it I've, I've seen it on various a, you know ALP align you know Facebook pages and groups it is it is absolutely you are the granny killers one of them I saw this week said literally and I've been taking names and there will be a reckoning of those who you know <laughs> taking names of straw men so far as I can figure out because I'm not aware of anyone who's actually said it but yeah that is that is absolutely the strategy. Yeah, but it's incredibly healthy for public debate because you, you, <laughs> the idea that you can't discuss um, what the virtues of a curfew are, well, because well, I, I I cannot see the virtue of a curfew from its stated policy aim. I understand why. I think I understand why they've done it. I think it, it just makes enforcing the other rules easier. But would yeah. would the government admit to that? Of course not. Well, and and of course the the thing that. Um uh, the assumption that all these strategies work, and also the the uh, particularly lockdown. So many of the countries which they point to as supposedly examples of the let it rip strategy have actually had um, great lockdowns. I mean, New York was locked down, but we still saw um, a terrible human toll. Um, other states in the US have had lockdowns, but have still had a terrible human toll. So there's a misrepresentation of what's been going on. In, in the world, and Chris, you've you've shared some some research, which uh, where some people have actually found very little correlation between lockdowns and um, and the progress of the disease. Yeah, let, let me let me briefly talk through this. Um, so uh, uh, there's there's a quite recent working paper um, put up by Christian um, Bjornskov, um, who is a uh, economist at our house university um he's uh, done some um data analytics looking at the uh, the severity of lockdown policy and its effect on mortality rates so uh, trying to find out whether the harder you lock down do you reduce mortality from covid now i will point out that this is this is a early stage paper um and it hasn't gone through formal peer review which whatever you think of that is um uh, you know confined find problems with um, particularly sort of statistical analysis like that. But nonetheless, so his paper finds that there's no clear association between lockdown policies and, and mortality. Now, take that with a grain of salt. And we're going to, and as we've said many times, we are going to be arguing about this probably for the rest of our lifetimes were the policies chosen that were correct. But my intuition right now and my reading of both the academic evidence and just what we see overseas is that unless you can go to zero cases like Taiwan, like New Zealand, like Western Australia, once it's out, it's out and it will spread through the community. And over time, like every epidemic, it will reduce after having spread through the community. That is awful. That is destructive. That is not a desirable thing and i can understand why no politician would ever say want to say this is our policy we're going to let a deadly virus spread but i i think just um looking at what has happened i think that is the trajectory that almost every jurisdiction will go through and if that's the case if that's the case um and if my my intuition is correct we're going to spend a lot of time thinking about wow what did we do to our economies and society to try to stave off that really devastating inequality. Yeah. So I have a question for Kean on this uh, because, as you say, you just a few minutes ago, Chris, you framed 
the the way the policy debate, uh, the polarised policy debate, and the two the two so-called policy options. But then what you've just done is actually say, well, maybe you don't actually really have policy options that are sustainable in the long term. So so Ken, my question is, uh, which would apply to WA and perhaps Queensland as well, as states which feel that they can uh, pull up, uh, you know, draw a hard border and stay there without any cases. Is there any discussion of how long must that go on? I mean, what's what's the feeling of that? the sustainability of that? I mean, it's obviously brilliant today in, in August 2020, but is there any discussion of what happens in December 2020, July 2020? Is this just stretch off into an indeterminate future? Yeah, there, there's not really any discussion here. Um, and... But this is the thing because the, the my the way that I think about it is that the the like um, risk tolerance in WA is is basically for zero risk, um, and so our last remaining restrictions, which were basically we have a two square meter rule um, in you know in cafes and whatever, and then large venues have a fifty percent capacity limitation, um, and it's that and the hard border. And the, um, except for the hard border, all of our restrictions were to be lifted on the 17th of July. Um, and then once things started happening in Victoria, that was pushed back by two weeks to the beginning of August, and then it was pushed back again. So nothing has even happened in WA. There's no cases in WA. WA had two cases of community transmission in May, and um, aside from that, there's, there's been nothing. Um, a few cases in hotels where return travellers have, have to quarantine there before heading home to whatever state they come from. Um, but there's no talk of, of when things will end. And the way that McGowan talks about it is if, if we can hold off for another two weeks or another four weeks, and that means that we don't have to lock down again, it's going to be worth it. Um, so, but, but in terms of the hard border, the, the, the feeling in the, in the community here is that it's been a really good thing that Mark McGowan's been on top of it. Um, and there's petitions going around, which I think perhaps people don't know how the High Court works, but they're um, signing these petitions to send to the High Court to say, please don't let Clive Palmer in and open up the hard border. Um, yeah. I, I think you meant to apply for an amicus brief rather than, <laughs> rather than a petition. But, um, yeah, and I, yeah, like I say, I, I can imagine why, you know, just... You could sit back today and 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 smoke uh, smoke a cigar and say, "Aren't we doing well?" But uh, when you think about um, the future of the Australian economy, the future of the Western Australian economy, you know, Western Australians might like to travel somewhere at some point. Uh, Western Australian tourism operators might like to have tourists from interstate at some point. Um, Western Australian universities might like to have students from overseas again at some point. Um, uh, so many, so many of the uh, things that animate our lives and our economies um, are effect effectively ruled out in perpetuity. Mm. But this is not something that's really being talked about, other than on looking forward. Other than on looking forward, that's yeah, right. That's right. I mean, so one of the places that it's also not being talked about, Scott. How's this for a segue? Is Parliament. Um, uh, so in Victoria, um, so in, uh, was it two weeks ago or, or a week or so ago, we um, uh, had a long discussion about the fact that the Australian Parliament has um, uh, isn't sitting until later this month, 
Um, now we're in a situation where the Victorian Parliament or the Victorian government doesn't want Parliament to sit, but the Victorian opposition does. So yesterday we were treated to an almighty farce, an almighty farce in Victoria, where the opposition sat in Parliament and the government declined to answer questions because it didn't believe it was a legitimate so this was a, a the, reasonable sitting of Parliament. So, so the upper house, which is controlled by uh, the opposition and the crossbenchers, went ahead with the scheduled sitting of Parliament, whereas the lower house... Um, on the basis of advice from chief medical officers, which, of course, override everything in this state, um, uh, decided it would not sit. So, we, yes, all this took place in the upper house. And so we had the spectacle of the minister, um, Jenny Mikakos, declining to answer questions in anything but written form um, in the middle of a parliamentary sitting, which is um, just an extraordinary, an extraordinary moment in a time when there is just so much, so much to debate. And even, again, even if you believe that the hard lockdown is the right strategy, there is so much to ask and quiz the government about the policies that would uh, are hopefully going to protect the, Australia, the Victorian economy. What are we going to do with childcare? And how is the Victorian government going to integrate, um, work with the Commonwealth government, there's just so much going on. And it is incredible that the Victorian government would be so arrogant as to decline to answer questions in a moment where the parliament was sitting, or the upper house was sitting at least. Yeah, it takes a bit to shock me, Chris. Um, the the 8pm curfew, uh, the fact that, you know, to turn up at your workplace, you need a piece of paper, which can be, which will have to be produced on demand. Uh, to a police officer or an ADF officer empowered um, to enforce the regulations. The fact that the, uh, declared a state of disaster, not just a state of emergency, which actually means that the, um, the police minister can override legislation. So we have actually suspended the rule of law uh, because um, to the extent that any orders conflict with any statute, uh, those orders take precedent. So we've suspended the rule of law, uh, we've got a curfew in place, and then uh, the only thing that uh, could possibly justify uh, such extreme measures is at least there is uh, opportunity for scrutiny after the event, which is the role of parliament. And so something like question time, which you know, would have a, um, you know, a two, three hundred year old tradition uh, in the Westminster system has just been jettisoned. Like it would have been one thing for Jenny McCarkos to sit up there and give bullshit answers, which would be no different to what the Andrews government has done since the day it was elected and treat parliament with the usual sort of contempt. But that would be common or garden variety um, a degradation of the parliament such as we have seen in Victoria in recent years. But to actually refuse to even entertain a question, to just stand up and say, I will give you something in writing uh, at a later date, uh, that actually shocks me to the core because if we haven't even got that, what what have we got, Chris? What have we got? Uh, well, over uh, for the next six weeks, I hope that we don't have any more viruses because if it happens that the lockdown doesn't work, if it doesn't substantially reduce those numbers, we are going to be between a rock and a hard place. Yep. Um, it is going to be very, very hard. I, I, it, it, I just can't begin to imagine what the policy response would be if this 
six week work uh, six week lockdown didn't function as yeah. the government hoped. I will actually point out the um, one other thing, and Scott, I'm sure you've been closely watching Dan Andrews's daily press conferences and then Scott Morrison's following press conferences. One of the things that in the um, Monday or the Tuesday press conference they talked a lot about was this idea that we uh, stage five, you know, there, there, there could be a stage five. It's inconceivable that there would be a stage five, but there would be a stage five if um, if this didn't work, if it didn't didn't prove. What what would that look like? Of course, we've no idea. It's inconceivable, Scott. You, there's, it's not even capable of imagining, but it might happen. Um, uh, the the extraordinary. I, I I can't help but obviously that's just a um, yeah. uh, a psychological thing to try to push us into. In, in, it, to absolutely uh, drive more people to suicide and destroy the you know the remaining mental health of of people. To not just say come to grips with this, but I'll give you a, a vision of something that's even worse, a further circle of hell into which you might descend. Uh, this is oh, like and, and and the absurd claims that so so right now. We could talk about this forever, Scott. But right now, we're in a situation where we've got abattoirs, meatworks, going into two-thirds capacity. Now, simultaneous to that, of course, the government doesn't want us to go off and panic buy. Um, <laughs> so, but so, pardon my laughter. <laughs> now, now, I, I, I can see that we do export a lot of food, so um, it's quite possible that two-thirds production would would be fine. And of course, we can import it from New South Wales and the rest of the country. But at the same time, they're also saying, and there might be a stage five, and that might involve the shutting of everything. They're like, well, you know, sh so should I stock up? Is that what you're telling yeah. me? Oh, and by the by, um, since uh, when you will be locked in your houses and you can only have delivery from supermarkets um, and their distribution centres, uh, they've also said that uh, the staffing within the warehouses and uh, distribution operations of the aforementioned supermarkets also have to be reduced by one third. Oh, that's true, actually. And they've said the same about Australia Post. And um, now that will have really significant effects. So, yes, really we, we we could actually get our beef mince from interstate if it wasn't for the fact that it, they won't be able to pack it fast enough and deliver it fast enough to actually get it here. Let's keep it, yeah. Ah, uh, uh, there we are, Scott. There we are. Anyway. So, so um, and we won't till, even have... Till next week. <laughs> we won't even have time to talk about the international picture, which is... Um, as I say, second, third, fourth waves all over the world. It's almost like this is a virus that can't be controlled by the technocratic state. Whoever would have thought that? Um, is this light relief to talk about TikTok, Chris, or is this? I don't know whether it's light relief. Um, so uh, TikTok. Uh, so TikTok, as um, listeners may may not know, <laughs> TikTok is a social media app very popular with the youths. Ken, do you have TikTok? No. Oh, okay. Well, that's your... He's younger than us, then. Chris. That doesn't make him a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so TikTok is a social media app. It's for videos. I have downloaded it just to see what it is like. And you just scroll and watch incredibly short videos. Um, it, the problem is, or the policy issue is, it is owned by a Chinese company. Um, that Chinese company is called ByteDance. Um, it is not the same product that they release in China. So it's not subject to the strictures of the um, Great Firewall of China. Um, uh, there's a parallel product for within China. Um, uh, but unsurprisingly, in our febrile um, geopolitical environment, this has raised all sorts of major concerns. 
within um, the United States. Um, it's raised concerns in Australia. It's actually been banned in India um, about whether it presents a national security risk, whether it presents a privacy risk because they might be sending data on their users back to um, back to China. Donald Trump has announced that TikTok will be banned in the United States from mid-September. It's very unclear how he would enforce that. Um, but I think I might ask you a question, Keon, and this is a bit of a question without notice. Would you say that this is a threat to... So banning a social media app, would you say that this is a threat to freedom of speech or is it more is it different or more complicated or more interesting than that um it's yeah, it's kind of a difficult one um i i think that this this has been bubbling away for a, a, since kind of november last year when the um when america launched this kind of investigation into what was going on um Perhaps from my, after reading Clive Hamilton's um, book, Silent Invasion, it's hard to believe that um, TikTok wouldn't be sending data back to the CCP or that, or that you know, isn't a possibility. Um, and I think perhaps so the, the national security concerns are legitimate. Um, yeah, I, I'm not too sure. I haven't thought through it too deeply. Um, in the you know the way it relates to free speech um it, it's an interesting one though because apparently there's all this other stuff going on in the background with facebook lobbying well reportedly allegedly facebook have been lobbying um the trump administration to ban tiktok um and it just happens that they're releasing a competitor app next week <laughs> um so I'm, I'm not actually too sure and the, the Committee on Foreign Investment um, in America, which is which has um, commenced this review in November of last year, I haven't actually seen anything that they've said about it. So I don't actually know um, if there are legitimate concerns. Um, I know a few companies, a few private companies in America have said to their employees, please delete this app off your phone if that phone has access to work emails. So that indicates that maybe some private companies are concerned. but. Um, yeah, and until we really know what what um, evidence the Committee on Foreign Investment have, it's kind of uncertain. So, about I mean, national security concerns. But but so there's a so I'll, I'll put my cards on the table. I think this is absurd. I think the idea that TikTok, which again is 15 minute short videos, uh, 15 second short videos, I should say, done by teenagers, presents a national security risk, is absurd and is a reflection of the deranged geopolitical environment we are in right now there is evidence about what they send back to or what what data tiktok servers collect not all of those servers are in um china by any means but what data they collect because you can actually see data as it moves between phones and 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 servers and so far as far as we can tell it collects exactly the same sort of data that every app collects it, the the device type the um uh the the um processing speed and power and that sort of thing there's no evidence to suggest it's collecting anything of any significance that would represent either a privacy or more absurdly a national security threat now 
maybe the US government is sitting on a hell of a lot more information that is available in the public. But I'm going to say, and I'm going to bet that they are not. Yeah. Because it's this is not this is not 5G. This is this is not like something that opens up a back door into some critical IT no, infrastructure. No, no, this is not. This is not Huawei, right? This is not building a Huawei network into your telecommunications infrastructure. It is a cheap social media app. But it, um, and one of the one of one of the uh, most trenchant criticisms I've seen of it actually out of the US. Uh, from the congressmen who are going after it, is that because it's Chinese-owned, uh, they're muting criticism of China. You know, they're, they're quietly taking down videos which are too critical of the Chinese government and so on. And, and it makes me laugh because so does Facebook. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, so does Disney when it releases its movies into China. <laughs> I mean, it's like as, as, if it only, as if only Chinese companies are going out of their way to avoid criticising the Chinese government. Look, and, and let's, let's say that that's a, a, absolutely right, and it well could be, and I haven't seen good research into whether they're muting or censoring critical material of the Chinese, uh, material critical of the Chinese government. Let's say it is. That, unfortunately, or fortunately, I would say, as a, someone who believes in economic freedom, is not a reason to ban an app from the United States just because a foreign company doesn't like various things on their pages for whatever reason maybe because they're they're unashamed communists maybe because they've been threatened by their own government just because an app makes a censorship decision that i disagree with deeply and um profoundly does not mean that we censor in response that app it's not a national security risk if TikTok, if you can't TikTok about absolutely every political matter. It's not a good thing if it's censored, but it's not a national security risk and it's not a justification for our own regime of censorship. I, I think we have to remember that we are the free society in this contest and we have to act like it sometimes. Well, the, the other one is the commercial aspect of... Um, so, I'm, you know, part of me just thinks, oh, all that said, well, you know, stuff them. Um, I feel a little bit like India must have after the... Chinese created some border clashes. But on the other hand, um, I'm probably more disturbed by the idea of what's how it's played out in America, which is essentially Trump originally said he was going to ban them and then Microsoft had to rush out an announcement on Sunday to say, well, actually, we've been negotiating to buy uh, the uh, essentially the Anglophone operation. So it's um, uh, USA, UK, Australia and New Zealand. Um, so please don't ban them because we want to buy them. So uh, this looks remarkably like extortion, really. It's essentially um, oh, no, no, you no, sell, you, sell you, it you, to an American you, company, otherwise we'll, we'll just ban it and destroy all the value. No, no, Scott, you've missed the big hook. So when Trump discussed it the other day, he said that I will only allow them to buy it if the Treasury takes a massive cut. Oh, and that as well. Oh, yeah, but even without that, even without that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, and, and this is, I mean, there's yeah, a yeah, extortion with a commission. Yeah, <laughs> you know? there's a couple of there's a couple of problems that this reveals. First of all, we have a very very politically, we have a very poor capacity to discuss new technologies, even if those new technologies are just social media 
applications. Um, we are very bad at understanding how they work. We're very, or politicians are at least, we're very, um, we have a very poor understanding of what the practical privacy risks are involved in the use of new technologies, what the national security risks are. Um, we have an um, aggressive geopolitical environment where we are jumping at shadows um, against a real, a real problem, a very real challenge with um, Chinese exertion of power. But that doesn't mean that it, just because China is exerting its power, it doesn't mean that every Chinese um, application is a, a weapon in that exertion of power. Um, and again, you know, uh, I hate to say it, but the, um, the United States president is just not a great person to lead the, uh, the, the new tech Cold War because it ends up in mercantilist incoherence as it has here. Um, no, you're not allowed to sell TikTok. No, you're not allowed to have TikTok. Oh, okay, you have to sell it, but you have to give us a big cut of the money. This is not how we win a Cold War. This is, this is a terrible strategy. Yeah, well, besides, what are the kids supposed to look at during lockdown? <laughs> I mean, uh, having having done my two minutes of research as you've been speaking, Chris, uh, mm. yeah, it is actually quite addictive. <laughs> You're on it now. <laughs> it's a, so yeah, I mean, you can scroll through it much easier than Instagram. It's actually a better technology. But as as Keen said, Instagram uh, is coming back with their their uh, their rip off version <laughs> within the next <laughs> the next week or so. Um, Keen, have you have you opened up the app while we've been speaking? Are you? Uh, no, uh, there's, there's resisted the urge. No, there's dog videos there, mate. So it's yeah, you know. Well, it's just a um, passes just my the, test. Well, the old version was Vine back in the day when that was the original. Kind yeah, of so tw- clips that went viral. Twitter had this service called Vine that it sh- no or or uh, anyway it was another company and then they bought it and shut it down. Um, which was just a catastrophic decision. I will make, uh, just on that, I will make another point. We talk so much about monopolies in the tech space while at the same time being really concerned that these new upcoming alternatives to Facebook, Twitter, to Google are um, creating new challenges. Now, um, I'm not saying that we should uh, feel fondness for a company owned by the Chinese government but we should be glad that the space is dynamic and competitive enough that um, a alternative social media app can come to dominate yes. the um, social media landscape. So yes, quickly. if you don't want Mark Zuckerberg to have all those advertising dollars, which seems to be the biggest issue that a lot of people have, well, let's give them to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> we have come to that part of the program, our books and culture segment, where we ask our panellists what they've been reading, watching and listening to. Um, Kian, you've been reading... Uh, a very interesting book that is going to be reviewed. Your review of it will appear in the IPA review, which members will, I'm pleased to say, will be receiving within the next week or so, depending on how Australia Post is coping with one third fewer people in their distribution centres. But you should have it soon. A great review that you've written, mate, of, of the book that you're about to tell us about. Yeah, thanks. So the book's um, A Time to Build by Yuval Levin. Um, so what it basically looks at is the decline of trust in institutions and then um, asks why, uh, why do people not trust institutions anymore and what can we do about this? Um, so it's, it's written in the American context and at the start of the book he kind of gives all these stats for declining trust in um, media and politics um, and, uh, but then also in um, religious institutions. So it kind of goes through 
um, the whole of society and notes that there's a glaring exception, which is <clears throat> trust in the military has been increasing. Um, so the, the trends broadly map across to Australia as well. Um, and his, his thesis basically is that people don't trust institutions anymore because they have, um, they're no longer, um, they're no longer formative institutions where people are molded into good people who serve society through the institution. They're now performative institutions where you basically use your place in the institution as uh, as a stage to then um, preach whatever your your politics or um, whatever you think about society is. Um, so it's it's a really interesting um, thesis which I think has is starting to be developed more broadly that you hear about this idea of the formative versus performative. Um, and I think this is something that, for example, in Australia uh, with the ABC, um, at the very beginning of the, of the lockdown, Emma Alberici, who's the chief economics correspondent, tweeted saying, will everyone stop talking about the economy? Um, which I think is a very good example of, of um, this idea of a performative institution. So you'd think if anyone was going to talk about the economy, it would be the chief economics correspondent <laughs> at the <laughs> at the billion dollar a year taxpayer funded, um, you know, ABC. Um, but but she decided that it was more important to flag her personal politics and and you know what what she thought about this rather than serving the public and saying you know obviously no one really knew what was happening at the beginning. There was talk, people were talking about lockdowns and what businesses could and couldn't be open. Um, we're shutting the borders. What does this mean for everyone's job? Um, and she could have delved into all of that and served the public. Um, but this is just an, an example, um, which which Levin argues is is seen more broadly. Um, his solution, though, seems to be a bit lacking, which is unfortunate, um, because he says that basically everyone in every institution needs to stop and say, given my position here, what should I do? Um, and I think that's the problem, because these people get these positions of power and think, well, given my position here, I have a voice and I should be speaking up about these, um, you know, these fringe issues that, that I care about that perhaps aren't related to my job. Yeah, it, 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 it did um, remind me of the, uh, the, the could have been champions um, injunction, you know, just take a good hard look at yourself. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just get it together. But um, and sorry, Chris. Just before you you ask your question, I did love it, and I love you know we talked about some of the examples. I mean, the World Health Organization was another one, uh, which you know if you go back over the last few years, had a lot of work on you know inequality or gender diversity or this or that or the other. And then when it actually came around to something like you know gosh a pandemic, which is actually part of their job, um, uh, they stuffed it. Um, so it was, uh, I've, I've found that as a diagnostic tool, this notion of the performative institution or certainly performative leaders, uh, a very, very useful one. Chris? It's, it's on my reading list, but I haven't gotten around to it, but the book is called A Time to Build. So, um, uh, what, a, what I've always been, what I've been particularly passionate about in recent years is the demand that. It's, it's all well and good enough for us to critique institutions as they are, um, to point out that a lot of them have turned performative. But we do need institutions. And so um, we have to create new ones or convert old ones 
to do that helpful functioning. And what I worry about, and I know Yuval Levine is actually a bit of sort of counterposed to um, many of the conservative um, revolutionaries that we have in the United States, but so much of our debate, particularly in the US, but somewhat here is how can we destroy institutions that we think have been perverted without how can we then build up alternative ones or how can we return those previous institutions to um, uh, to, to function better. And the World Health Organization is a good example, right, Scott, because the World Health Organization has, and I've been critical about it for, and I've written about it for, for the better part of a decade, well before the pandemic, has um, gone way off its mission to deal with communicable diseases across borders. The United States has responded to an apparent takeover by China of the World Health Organization by withdrawing from it. That's, I can understand why, but what is going to replace it? It's still a problem. It's still an institution we need. It's still, the demand is still there. Um, and, and I think that you can expand that across all of our, the institutions that we correctly identify as having been politicized or corrupted in some way. But that doesn't mean we don't need no institutions. We need to build them. And there's so little effort being gone to building there's only effort being gone to, to knock him down. Yeah. Uh, I'll just add as an afterthought, actually, there is some data coming out that during the pandemic, some institutions have actually made a little bit of a comeback. Um, and I'm thinking here of, uh, say, the banking sector in Australia, which had um, obviously been toweled up by the Hain Royal Commission uh, and all those um, case studies that were rolled out as examples of the the perfidy of bankers and this was at a time when the banks had embraced sort of the woke capitalism strategy you know westpac foremost amongst them uh, you know about it was about their approach to sustainability and whatever but what's really interesting is that the way they've rebuilt trust during the pandemic is not by uh, going on about their supposed cardinal virtues but by focusing on their job uh, you know, it's the business of lending and, and, and uh, you know, how, what it means to work with small businesses, what it means to work with, with homeowners. And they, uh, they also did it as an industry. Um, I've, I've read, you know, sort of this, this case study about how Anna Bly uh, insisted on an industry-wide approach and they, they got clearance from the ACCC because otherwise it would be illegal for them to even talk to each other. Um, but the point is there... There is a pathway back to trust uh, for some institutions. Others probably should be abolished and we start again. Um, but I, I just found it really interesting that the pathway back was to, to go back to the core mission. And uh, perhaps if they do a bit more of that and jettison all, all this baggage they've, they've, they've picked up over the years, we might get somewhere. And we certainly don't do what the experts do, which is just say, isn't it terrible that people don't trust us? We must, we must force them to trust us. <laughs> we just, need to, <laughs> we just yet need to yell at them more. Um, how can uh, cryptocurrency solve all this, Chris? Oh, thank you. Thank you, Scott. That's, a, that's an open-ended question that I'm going to answer for the next hour and a half. So <laughs> tune in. Um, no, so I'm, I'm, Josh, I'm Josh, to, is, uh, Josh has got his hand uh, over, the, over the red button at any time. <laughs> he's, he's just the, itching the, to use the dump it button. too. Um, so I'm reading a book called The Infinite Machine, How an Army of Crypto Hackers is Building the Next Internet with Ethereum. So Ethereum um, is a uh, cryptocurrency. 
Um, uh, it's basically the second largest cryptocurrency after Bitcoin. Um, probably many uh, listeners know a little bit about Bitcoin or have heard of Bitcoin, but Ethereum is a um, newer cryptocurrency with a much larger ambition, which is to become a decentralized, not a decentralized money, but a decentralized global computer. And that decentralized global computer um, gives us all these rather incredible potential ways to reshape how companies work, how um, governments function, how we interact with each other, um, preventing uh, in a way that prevents the government or states or large firms um, from from uh, censoring us or preventing us from from making exchanges and so forth. Anyway. At the moment, Ethereum is most famous for the most exciting because of its enormous decentralized finance um, uh, properties. So there's this whole dark finance world at the moment called DeFi that has some really significant potentials to revolutionize how the finance industry works in a way that, again, can't be censored, can't... Um, be prevented uh, uh, can't can't be stopped by big governments and, and and big corporations. Anyway, so this is a this book is a really fun, quite rollicking, quite engaging, and um, anecdotally strong, I should say, history and uh, of the origins of Ethereum of its uh, famous co-founder named Vitalik Buterin, who um, uh, was a, a Canadian migrant, migrant to Canada. Um, and it's highly recommended if you're interested in just getting your head around what is still an increasingly a very fast moving and potentially revolutionary field. It is indeed. Um, uh, and my ignorance is almost total. So perhaps Almost total. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, you, we, have been, we have been doing this podcast for two years now. And, um, <laughs> it doesn't stick, Chris. But anyway, it doesn't may, stick. May, maybe this one. I'll have a look. No, no, thank you for that. Um, uh, I've got a movie. No books this week. Um, and uh, it's an odd one, you might think, for looking forward because it is um, uh, the, uh, the movie about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, the Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the US, um, who is it still in the news today because uh, she's 87 years old, she's quite unwell, and uh, there was thought that if um, uh, she had sadly been forced to resign or worse at some point, then that would have given Trump an opportunity to appoint a third uh, Justice of the Supreme Court during this term. Uh, I'm not sure whether that, that window is now closed, but in any event... Um, she was. She is a, a liberal uh, on the U.S. Supreme Court from the uh, appointed under, I think, uh, Clinton in his first term. She's been there for something like 27 years. And uh, why was I watching this movie? Well, I swear to God, I was trying to buy Sicario on uh, on the Foxtel <laughs> Foxtel box, and 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 then I bumped it. And when I went to hit um, pay now. It had scrolled over to the next movie, which was this one. So I bought both, watched Sicario, Mexican drug trade, lots of violence. They are wildly different. <laughs> wildly different. The next night, I was able to say to my family, um, okay, I've got this other movie. I've paid for it now. We might as well watch it. And I got, I got uh, my old, eldest daughter was uh, quite interested, and, um, and rightly so. So here's, here's the thing. 
So she was a crusading uh, lawyer and uh, feminist who took on some what became landmark cases. Whilst she was a professor at Rutgers University, she'd graduated from, uh, she'd studied at Harvard Law School in Columbia, uh, where she'd topped many of her classes. She's undoubtedly a very, very bright cookie. And she identified discriminatory law and virtually pioneered um, through the cases that she litigated uh, the jurisprudence around um, uh, sex, sexual or gender discrimination in the US. And so here I am watching this movie. It's, it's nicely put together. And uh, undoubtedly in the, the 50s and 60s, like when uh, this discriminatory environment was very real, when she went to Harvard, she was only one of seven women in that intake and they still talk, uh, the dean's address, they still talk about Harvard men. Um, and then uh, when she graduated, even though she had this stellar academic record, she was unable to secure a position with any of the um, uh, important New York law firms and it was truly uh, on the basis of her gender and there's some nice little scenes around that. So she went into academe but fought these cases. But here's the thing, there's something in it for everyone, Chris, because whilst you know, it's inspirational uh, from the point of view of civil rights, uh, of fighting for women's rights, it does harken back to a time of liberal feminism, if you like. The classic argument that here are the rights promised under the Constitution that all people will be treated equally. And on what basis do you say that uh, on the basis of sex, or stroke gender, was that that sort of cusp? On the basis of sex, you as a woman are not allowed to do these things. Um, this, this goes against the idea of the Constitution. And under the American system, she could argue the Constitution in the federal court. God, I wish we had that opportunity here, but we can only do that in the high court. But she did it. She did it successfully. And it was like that first wave of the civil rights movement. And it almost makes me nostalgic for a time when the radical push in America and around the Western world was for equality and to say everyone should have access to these rights instead of what we have now, which is this um, search for sociological ideas of like equality is never possible, we don't want equality, it's almost a resegregation re and all the sort of things that we've talked about in identity politics and cultural Marxism. So um, in that basis, I finished up enjoying the movie and... Uh, yeah. And, and I do I do respect uh, what she did. As I say, she's very smart. And um, uh, whatever she's, uh, whoever replaces her, I've got a funny feeling that, um, uh, actually there's, there's the quote, which I should, um, if you'll just bear with me for one sec. Uh, the whole movie turns around something one of her lecturers at uh, Harvard said, which is, a court ought not be affected by the weather of the day, but will be by the climate of the era. Um, and in the movie, the, the court essentially follows the changing social mores. Um, I, I, I wanted to live forever because whoever she's replaced with, if that quote is, is apposite and they follow the, um, the changing, changing cultural norms in America, then they're going to be worse off. <laughs> so <laughs> on that conservative note, I'll sort of leave that there. Leave that. Just leave that sitting. <laughs> have, you, have you seen the movie, Chris? I have seen the movie actually. I I I, I think I really enjoyed it. <laughs> there's um there's a genre of biopic at the moment that um a very 
not super memorable, but are just a good way to introduce a person to you. Yeah, well, that's like right. a, it's a combination of documentary verite sort of. Yeah, thing. when 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 you're watching a movie at night, just a good simple biopic, you know what you're going to yeah. get. And, yeah, 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 and that's all right. And I recommend, right. um, yeah, the the Ray Charles one. By the way, but I get off topic. You have been listening to Looking Forward. Uh, they were our culture picks. Uh, we thank you very much for listening. If you are a member of the IPA, we do thank you very much for your support. If you're not a member of the IPA, go to our website now and you can actually see some of our great membership offers. That's ipa.org.au. Uh, I'd like to say a big thank you to my co-host, Chris Berg. Thanks, Scott. Uh, and to research fellow, Ken Hussey, making his debut on Looking Forward. Been great to have you. Thanks, Scott. Um, you take care of yourself over there, mate. A big thank you yeah. also to uh, Josh in the control room. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.